Hello and welcome to this edition of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood. I'm a critical care and EM nurse practitioner in Wilderness and Extreme Medicine Fellow. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Pav Singh. Welcome, Dr. Singh. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Great, great. Today, we're going to discuss ocular emergencies, specifically some of the more common eye conditions and injuries that occur in expedition. There's a lot of attention that's paid to high altitude cerebral edema, high altitude pulmonary edema, uh, mountain sickness, but ocular emergencies are, are pretty common in expedition medicine and are really important. If you can't see, um, that really puts your mission at risk. And I think, you know, we've all experienced probably some minor injuries. It's really important to kind of have a, a good understanding of some of the ocular emergencies that can occur in expedition in wilderness medicine. So let's, first of all, I wanna welcome you, Dr. Singh. Um, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Steve. So yeah, I'm um, I'm a, a trainee in ophthalmology in my final year, which is the ST7 year here in the UK. Uh, it's a seven year training program. Um, and I've been involved with REM for a couple of years now in, in different roles. Um, and uh, now I'm just trying to bring a little bit of education about ophthalmology and um, its applications to the wilderness setting. Um, because as you mentioned, it is really important and, you know, not just in a expedition setting, even in the hospital environment is very poorly and briefly taught to uh, fellow medics and allied healthcare professionals. So especially as you mentioned in the wilderness setting, um, it becomes very relevant because if people on expedition are not able to see they're pretty much out of the game. So hopefully today we can talk about some of the common conditions um, that may be seen and that, you know, it helps people to identify and then come up with a suitable management plan um, and help people on expedition keep going or get them taken out, evacuated to more definitive care facilities. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I hold ophthalmology near and dear to my heart because one of my favorite tools is the woods lamp, um, although unfortunately there's no relation uh, to, to that. <laughs> and also, I'm also fascinated by the slit lamp. I think, you know, those of us who work in emergency medicine, we all have a slit lamp in our emergency department. Uh, we mostly know how to turn it on um, and use maybe the, the blue light, a little bit of the white light. But I think I agree. It's something that, you know, we don't get a lot of training in and uh, really could, you know, uh, use uh, some better education on, on how to use these tools. Certainly, no one's taking a slit lamp on expedition, but that is something we're going to talk about, about what, you know, people should be bringing in their kit uh, yeah. for dealing uh, with ocular emergencies. But let's start with talking a little bit. And, and you know, I think this is something probably in, in expedition medicine and in wilderness medicine, we don't have a lot of good data on, um, you know, some of the, the incidents of many of the types of injuries or illnesses that occur in this setting. Is there any data on how common eye injuries are uh, in this environment or even some just empirical data on just the, you know, how common in, uh, eye injuries or eye emergencies are uh, in expedition in wilderness medicine? Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. Um, I haven't been able to find any, any data on that. I'm not sure whether there's been much studies looking at that, but um, what we can say is looking at environment related issues, um, things like foreign bodies, abrasions are going to be quite common in certain places uh, where you've got, you know, 
areas like low-hanging branches or just where trauma is more of a possibility. Um, you can look at your contact lens-related um, pathologies in people who wear contact lenses, um, and they may be at higher risk in, in areas where hygiene is, is reduced um, in terms of picking up infections. Um, and wherever there's a risk of trauma, so in terms of certain activities, you're going to find, obviously, there's a higher risk of possibly facial trauma. Um, surfers especially have, have been implicated in picking up higher facial trauma from the, the sharp edges of, of surfboards, actually, surprisingly. Um, and a lot of them have been reported to sustain you know, eyelid and eye uh, trauma. Um, so, I, I mean, I couldn't find any data um, in preparation for this, but if we take it on first principles, um, things like the trauma and foreign bodies, et cetera, they would be fairly common. And especially, in, again, coming to environment-related um, specifics, things like UV keratitis, um, that's quite common if, if prevention is not taken um, in areas where you can get exposure like snow, um, areas where there's snow, or even at sea, because um, you have reflection from the sun. Um, high altitude retinopathy is a entity which is on the spectrum with the other high altitude illnesses. Um, it tends to generally be asymptomatic, but it's actually very common. Um, studies have shown, there have been studies on that, that it is relatively common in people ascending to altitude. Um, but again, because it's asymptomatic most of the time, it doesn't really cause much problems. But it's, it'll be worth just mentioning that briefly at the end. Absolutely. Um, what I'd like to start with, actually, is, you know, what, what should we as medical providers be thinking about? Um, pre-expedition. So we're going to be, you know, managing um, some of, you know, our colleagues or we're taking some people on expedition. Um, you know, people oftentimes will have underlying medical conditions or eye conditions mm -hmm. uh, that we'd want to know about. So what are some of the eye conditions that we'd want to know about before taking, you know, a group up a mountain or into uh, the wilderness? So there are certain conditions that you know, we would want to be aware of as medics uh, you know, prior to uh, deploying? You'd want to look at if they have any uh, refractive error and what correction they use for it. So are they glasses, people who wear glasses or do they wear contact lenses? Um, in either case, you'd advise them to stick with the method they're already using. So if they're contact lens wearers, um, they can stick with that. If they're glasses wearers, stick with glasses. However, in some cases, or in most cases, I would, if they can tolerate it, advise some of the contact lens wearers to either consider switching to spectacles or having a spare pair of spectacles with them, because it just makes life a little bit easier. You know, if, you, if, you can, if you're not wearing contact lenses, you, you are taking out the risk of contact lens related keratitis, which can be quite devastating and um, relatively difficult to treat out on expedition and you're going to have to end up sending the patient back. Um, ask them to take spares of whatever they have um, and you know people have a prescription in their glasses or if they're wearing lenses ask them to have that built into any sunglasses or visors they may have if they're going to an environment that may require that um, other other conditions diabetes is relatively common um, then again it doesn't tend to cause too much trouble in terms of the eye on expedition 
Um, you'd want people to have had an eye examination approximately six months prior to expedition because in case there are some diabetic-related problems, they can get some treatment um, for that. Um, and then general medical stuff, you want to make sure they've got their glycemic control covered. Um, some people have glaucomas, a condition generally of the elderly, so you may have to be aware of that if you're taking a, a group of elderly citizens out doesn't really cause too many problems. Make sure they have all their medication with them. Um, acetazolamide often given with um, as, a, as a treatment for altitude sickness. Um, that doesn't really cause too many problems. It, it, we, we use it in the eye department to reduce the eye pressure. If a patient's already on pressure-lowering drops and they require it for mountain sickness, then the worst-case scenario is it might drop the pressure pretty low for a little bit, but in, on the long run, it won't cause too many problems. So I wouldn't have any issues with that, someone being given that. Um, you want to make sure your um, participants haven't had any previous retinal surgery with, um, from which they have had gas injected into the eye if they're going to altitude, because then that gas will expand. And the gases can vary um, in their duration of action and how long they last in the eye from about two weeks to roughly eight weeks. So it would be useful to have that information if the patient has had recent surgery. And then generally speaking, this obviously in, in eyes, we do come across lots of systemic conditions. So you wanna, you know, as a general medic as well, you wanna make sure that they have, you know, they're systemically well and fit enough to go out there. That's great advice. And I think it's important information to ask. And that's, you know, that's the kind of pre-planning um, that, you know, I, I don't think people think a lot about. They think about things like, you know, asthma and, mm. you know, respiratory conditions, cardiovascular conditions, but thinking about the eye obviously is is critically important as well. Oh, just um, to mention, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I forgot to mention one one condition, and it's not so relevant nowadays, but back in the olden days, they laser, laser procedures um, or refractive surgery to the cornea um, there was uh, an older technique called a radial keratotomy, which isn't done nowadays, so it's less relevant. But at altitude, what happens, the, the cornea, if it's had um, a procedure such as radial keratotomy or nowadays more like the, the LASIK procedures done, um, it can change shape and that can cause a bit of a refractive change for the patient. Um, radial keratotomies would cause patients to become quite long-sighted um, significantly, significantly enough to um, reduce their vision. Um, the newer techniques such as LASIK, they cause less change and people can become mildly short-sighted temporarily, which isn't too much of a problem because they could usually still navigate in their, you know, the, the close environment. But it's just worth checking that the patient hasn't had any recent refractive surgery um, and some of the guidelines suggest that if they have, you, they wait for at least three months post-op just to let the cornea settle. That's great advice. Great advice. And I think, you know, those of us who um, work in that area and bring people out on expedition, this is critical information to, to have. And I think oftentimes overlooked and uh, underestimated. So thank you for, for sharing that advice with us. So now I'd like to move on and talk about some of the more common injuries and i'm gonna just let you roll with this um uh because i think uh you know uh 
you have you have uh, a, a list of, of things that we want to get to. Um, I'd like to start with corneal abrasions. Um, having treated many of these in the emergency department, I don't think I appreciated uh, how painful these can be until I sustained one myself. Mm. Um, and uh, um, you know they they can really be pretty they're very common um, and can be pretty debilitating. So let's let's start with corneal abrasions. Again, these are pretty common injuries. You know, what advice would you have for um, assessing and then uh, managing these injuries? And then I'll kind of let you roll with kind of moving forward with some of the other kind yeah. of common uh, injuries and, and, and other pathology that we might see. Okay, so the corneal abrasion, yeah, very common, um, very painful because the cornea is if not the most, one of the most innovated areas of the body. Um, first of all, my advice is for everyone to become familiar with ocular anatomy. That's vital. So knowing where things are and what looks normal and what looks abnormal. And that can be done, you know, there's lots of resources on the internet, but nothing is better than seeing patients in, in, the, in the live setting in your local ED department and using a slit lamp to, to get used to the appearances of normal and abnormal. Um, in the expedition environment, abrasion, you know, I've, I know of a, someone who was on a, a form of expedition, but they, um, you know, a, a low hanging branch and actually caused a corneal laceration, which is a bit different, but, um, you know, they're very common and you can get foreign bodies blown into the eye. You can get low hanging branches. You can get any other forms of trauma. Um, it can be a relatively mild trauma, but anything that will take away some of the corneal epithelium will result in an abrasion and it can be very painful and vision can or cannot be affected. Generally speaking, there will be a deficit in the vision. If your abrasion is right above the central visual axis, then you'll have more of a visual deficit. Um, it's important to take a really good history. Um, you want to find out what, and this is, this is back to basics, really basic principles, take a really good history, find out what the, patient was doing during the day, what activities they were doing, um, when the pain started, um, make sure they don't have any underlying corneal conditions. Um, find out from them if they've, you know, been rubbing the eye or anything like that. And then it's important to take a vision because that will help you know, you know, just what, how serious um, what you're dealing with is if their vision is normal, that's a good sign. I mean, that doesn't preclude a, a significant abrasion, but it does give you a little bit of, you're a bit more reassured if the vision's normal. But essentially, the, the best way to diagnose it is um, fluorescein is your friend. Um, and you, you will pop some, a drop of fluorescein in the eye um, and blue light. If you can get a pen torch or any, any kind of light source with the blue light, if you look at an, an abrasion, wherever there's a defect of the corneal epithelium and you've stained it with fluorescein and you view it under blue light, it will light up green. Um, and you can really see it quite clearly. It's really good to look online at you can Google corneal abrasion images and get used to the different types. Um, and depending on the type of injury. So, you know, a, a scratch from a twig or a scratch from an animal, like a cat or a dog, um, might be quite linear, whereas other forms of injury can be oval shaped, etc. They generally look quite clean. So you can see nice, clear margins. Um, and the eye itself might be a little bit red. Um, they are 
from our point of view, from my point of view, as an ophthalmologist, the, the difference between a corneal abrasion and a corneal ulcer, we can tell from looking at them, but from a, a non-ophthalmologist, that might be quite difficult. Essentially, in the, in the um, expedition environment, the initial treatment would be similar. But if you've, if you've got a history that matches, a, a history of some kind of trauma, appearances of a corneal abrasion, um, what you want to do then with the patient is you want to start them on some, an antibiotic ointment, ideally, because it will just help keep the eye lubricated as well as protecting it from a bacterial infection. Um, and then some people would say pad the eye. It's probably not a good idea because it can, it can reduce the, um, well, you can't really assess the patient. And then you, what you want to do is you want to be able to see how the patient's doing. And often if you pad the eye, when you're going to remove the pad, it might just, the, the, the lid having been closed for so long, after you open the lid, it might just peel off some of the epithelium that was healing. So it's just best to ask them to um, blink as normal. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much covers abrasions. Um, yeah. yeah. Here in the United States, we use um, erythromycin uh, ophthalmic ointment. Is, yeah. is the antibiotic choice as important as actually just the lubrication? Or Not really, yeah, I think anything will do. In the UK, we use chloramphenicol, and I think it's just, uh, it just depends on local guidelines. But um, generally speaking, they're not infected. So as long as you're lubricating and providing a bit of antibiotic cover, anything would do. Um, and depending on the size of it, that, that was a good, I, I, didn't, I forgot to mention that. If once you've stained the cornea and you've got a, if you have a, just a small linear scratch or a little oval shape, um, and the patient, you know, was not a lens, contact lens wearer, and there's a clear history of a trauma, you'd be quite comfortable treating that because you can monitor it daily. You can make sure it's getting better. If you've got a large abrasion, which is covering, you know, considerable proportion of the cornea, despite it being an abrasion, you know, you, you have a history that supports there being an abrasion that might be best for, to that, for that person to be evacuated because large corneal epithelial defects can get infected and you know you don't want to be messing around with that and uh here in the united states there's some controversy and i'm not sure if this is you know an international um you know issue as well as to whether or not to provide tetanus um, prophylaxis um you know i think people are moving away from it um unless there's a penetrating eye injury uh, mm. but there are still some providers who do tetanus prophylaxis what are your thoughts on that that's a surprise we don't have that in the uk we don't do that routinely for corneal abrasions um yeah for penetrating trauma that it makes sense but i i have not come across that and we wouldn't do that routinely in the uk sure sure and then similarly um we've always been taught uh to avoid you know we we will anesthetize the eye with some tetracaine or another um you know anesthetic uh for the evaluation We've always been told, you know, not to to continue using that for patients, uh, regardless of their discomfort. Although there are some people who will do a very dilute solution, so they'll do like a one to ten uh, dilution um, and instill that every few hours uh, for comfort. You know, I, I guess the old adage is you don't want people feeling that it's been, you know, completely anesthetized. They might further traumatize it. What are your thoughts on providing some anesthetic? 
uh, for those injuries? Yeah, good, good question. Because a lot of the patients and I've, the ones I've seen as well, they once you've put the anesthetic in for evaluation, the, the pain completely goes. And they ask you, say, Doc, can I have this drop now, you know, for the next few days? Um, but exactly, it's not a good idea because if the eye is completely anesthetized, um, they won't feel anything and they might rub the eye and make it worse. Also, the, the, the sensation of pain will stimulate healing, which is important. So you don't want to block that. Um, that's a good suggestion about a diluted mixture. Again, I haven't come across that, but where or how that would swing the balance between comfort and healing um, I would tend to generally rely on the, the lubricating effect of the ointment to, you know, provide comfort and provided it's just a clean abrasion after about a day or two, the pain should start to become significantly less. Um, so personally, I would probably stick with no anesthetic um, in terms of, you know, the next over, over the next few days of treatment um, and just rely on the ointment to just help things heal. Yeah, they do heal rather quickly. I mean, the yeah. cornea, yeah, heals pretty quickly. And so that's great advice. So yeah, let's let's move on then. I know you have some other uh, uh, injuries to cover, so I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Well, I thought it would be important to just talk about uh, foreign bodies as well, kind of in the similar vein of, of, of trauma um, or traumatic incidents. Um, again, it's really important to find out what the mechanism was, if, if the patient was, you know, chopping wood or working with drilling some metal or hammering something out there. Um, and they tend to present with a, a painful gritty eye, which is red. Um, you may be able to see it with a naked eye if it's a metallic foreign body on the, on the cornea. Um, if you obviously have magnifying loops or any kind of magnifier, hopefully you should still be able to see it. If not, again, fluorescein is your friend. And if you dye the eye with fluorescein, um, and looking under blue light, it should light up. It should be quite obvious. Um, then it depends on, again, anatomy is really important. So you need to know where things are and you need to know where the cornea is. And that, you know, if you, sometimes you get people referring to us saying there's a foreign body on the iris, which that would suggest a penetrating trauma, um, which often isn't the case. It's usually just lodged on the cornea. Um, and again, I'd recommend people obtaining experience in their local emergency department before doing this first off in the bush somewhere, but they can be removed relatively easily, easily with a 21 gauge or 23 gauge needle. And what you do is you use the, the beveled edge to just kind of scoop the, the often circular um, foreign body up and away or down and away from the cornea. Um, and depending on your confidence, you know, it, it takes a bit of skill, even on the slit lamp in a controlled setting, but out, out, out in the expedition environment, um, you may have a, you know, the patient might be quite mobile and the head might be mobile. So you want to try and immobilize them in a, in a, in a sensible way. Um, depending on your experience, you may get all or part of the foreign body out. If you can get the bulk of it out and you're left with a bit of a rustering, um, depending on the duration of your expedition and where you are, you may just get away with then covering them with, again, an antibiotic ointment um, and then getting them some definitive care, um, provided they remain comfortable um, in the next few days. Of course, if you're not happy and you can't get it out and you're, you're worried about the patient or 
just the eye does not look quite right, which is which is always a good, you know, kind of physician's instinct. If you if if things do not look quite right, then get them to definitive care sooner. Taking again, taking history, taking a vision is very important. If you've got an eye which has had some kind of trauma and you you can see a foreign body, but the vision is really really poor and it wasn't, unless that foreign body is you know sitting right on top of their pupil, you need to be considering whether there's been any further trauma. So always use your vision and think of structure and function. Um, And those two can guide you in terms of um, assessing just how bad the injury is. Um, On the topic of foreign bodies, um, it's important to always, if the patient has a gritty sensation in the eye um, and you can't see anything on the ocular surface, you need to evert the upper lid. um, and, And that's a bit of a, uh, manual skill and that needs to be practiced um, but sometimes foreign bodies and foreign material can be um, hidden under the upper lid um, and once you've flipped it over it can be quite easy to see and again if you've got fluorescent in the eye under the blue light any foreign material should light up in a greenish color and then you can give it a good sweep with a cotton bud a wet a wet cotton bud and hopefully get rid of that. And that's quite satisfying because you can actually make a really big difference there. Um, next Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, how, how important, so, you know, we do see a lot of uh, metal foreign bodies uh, and how important is it to, to treat that rust ring emergently? Or is that something that can be taken care of, you know, days, weeks later, or is that something that needs to be, resolved uh, earlier, sooner rather than later? It, it can wait. If you've taken the bulk of the foreign body off and you're left with the rust ring, um, you know, it can wait a few days. It can probably even wait a week as long as you've got a good antibiotic cover. Because what often happens is that the little defect that you've made by removing the foreign body, um, the cornea itself will start to heal and the epithelial cells will multiply. And they can often start bringing some of that rust material to the surface. Um, so the body will start to remove it as well. Okay, great. Uh, so let's move the one of my least favorite things I think uh, with regard to eyes is eyelid lacerations. What would be kind of your thoughts on on those types of injuries? Okay, yeah. So they they can be really interesting and range from mild to quite gruesome. Um, so when it comes to a laceration, you're looking at a, a traumatic cause. You want to figure out how the trauma happened. What was the kinematics of the trauma? What was the velocity, the, the object, or however it happened? Because that will inform you um, whether there's any other injury. Is there? Could there be a globe injury, for example? Um, could there be a foreign body hidden in all that mess or somewhere under the lids? Um, so your first port of call is, again, knowing the anatomy because you know there's a difference between an eyelid laceration which splits the lid margin um or a laceration which splits you know just the skin around the lid um which does not involve the lid margin there's also a difference between a laceration which involves the 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 caniliculi medially that's the the tear drainage system um, and you know, it's a small, it sounds like a small matter, but if, if you, if the caniliculi have been lacerated, um, and the lid isn't put together correctly soon, pa- the scarring will occur. And then that patient may have a, a watery eye for the rest of their life, which, which is, isn't actually quite a nice thing to have. Um, 
So it's really good to know your anatomy because then you know what's happening and where things are. And I'll, I keep emphasizing that. Um, and when you're faced with a laceration, once you've taken history, you kind of figured out what could have happened and you kind of figured out where things are. You want to explore the wound. You want to clean the wound up. There will likely be debris in there. And then it depends on your expertise and your experience because you can, certain um, lid lacerations, you can attempt to close them. I mean, if it's just a superficial skin wound and, then, and you can oppose the margins either with steri strips or even with superficial sutures, like some vicral um, absorbable sutures, and you know, there's and there's not fat prolapsing, or there's nothing else coming out. And by opposing the edges, you're not disrupting the architecture of the rest of the lid, i.e., you're not causing a gap to occur where you know you've pulled edges together and the eyelid is now remaining open in some places when they're blinking. That's a bad idea. You don't want to do that. But if you can bring together the edges quite nicely. And when you're looking at it, you seem to have restored a degree of anatomy, then by all means, go ahead. Um, you want to make sure that the eyeball is not exposed. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, general principles are put things back together the way they are. If you can cover it with some antibiotic ointment um, and then pad it. And again, it will depend on how extensive it is. So if it's going through structures, which are important, like I mentioned, the, the lid margin, um, the canalicular system, or if it's looking quite deep and there's several layers of soft tissue you can see um, and you've got fat prolapse, that's something that you want to just pack up safely and then get the patient evacuated for definitive exploration and treatment. Because some of these lid lacerations look quite small on the surface, but you want to be careful there's been no orbital extension of whatever injury or foreign body there was that caused it. Oh, sure. I don't, I don't think anyone in emergency medicine gets excited about fixing, you know, lid lacerations. I think that's one of the, the few areas where we start to, you know, raises some hairs. And so that's, that's great advice for both, um, you know, the uh, urban providers, as well as those that are working in, in extreme medicine and, and, and expedition medicine. Um, how about uh, globe injuries? I, these are a, another injury, I think, that, you know, um, people worry about. Um, there's a lot of kind of controversy about, you know, uh, how to evacuate these individuals and can you use, you know, air, air transport for patients that ha might have a globe injury. What can you tell us about globe injuries? Okay, yeah, very good, very good um, topic to come on to next. Um, first of all, yeah, okay, so your globe injury, again, it depends on, you want to find out the, the kinematics of the trauma, how it happened, what was the causative um, object or event, what was the, the velocity, uh, was it blunt, was it sharp, um, was there an impact to the, the rest of the face, um, trauma can be blunt, can be open, penetrating, perforating. There's just different definitions of different types of trauma. Um, signs of globe trauma, you'll, I mean, when it's quite horrendous, you, you will just know it. You'll see it. You know, you'll see like a squashed tomato appearance, a very soft eye, very completely red, and you might have lid. You know, in a high velocity facial impact, and you've got a very red eye with swollen lids and you know everything just not looking normal you're going to have a very high suspicion of a globe trauma obviously pain would be reduced i'm sorry vision would be reduced um 
there often is pain, but surprisingly, sometimes you, some people don't have much pain, which I, I have seen that sometimes they don't be fooled when if they're relatively comfortable. Um, it's important to remember, and just we were on the topic of lids, and someone mentioned some blunt injuries to the face um, can cause so high impact velocity or high velocity impacts to the face can cause um, what we call a retro, retro bulbar hemorrhage or orbital compartment syndrome, where you get bleeding into the closed space of the orbit. And then the patient in that case presents with a proptosis, so like a, a, an eye which is bulging forward and, and a very tight area. The, the, all the, both the lids are often swollen. They're very tight and very tense to palpation compared to the other side. Um, they're often very red. The eye is looking red vision is reduced and people often not reactive. And if all the, the story fits, that is most likely a retrobulbar hemorrhage. And that needs immediate treatment with what we call a lateral canthotomy and canthalysis, which is something that should be able to be performed by non-ophthalmologists in the emergency setting. And certainly that's what's taught here in the UK in terms of the um, ED departments. Um, so I would recommend listeners to you know, look up that procedure because it is relatively simple. You, you, you split um, the lateral canthus and the lateral canthal tendon. And all that does is, and it can be done, you can use local anesthetic on the skin, but in, in the expedition environment, if you don't have that, you'll just have to make a cut on the skin with a uh, um, surgical scissors or a scalpel. And what it does is just it just opens up the lids and it lets that blood that's been gathering behind the eye and compressing the optic nerve just ooze out and you get, you know, often you get a quite a quick resolution and the return of vision. So that's a really important procedure to know. Um, I would recommend people look that one up and try and get down to your ED. Well, <laughs> I was going to say get down to ED and try and get experience of it, but it's not something that happens very commonly. Um, you, it's probably best looking at videos and it may be visiting your eye department um, and trying to, because that procedure is done on a routine basis for other types of lid surgery. So there's no, if you get in touch with your eye department, they might be able to let you sit in on a, on a, on a lid operating list to get some experience there. Um, generally speaking now, back to the, the globe injury, um, you can get, different types. Um, if you've had a blunt trauma, you might see a high femur in the eye. To be honest, you can also see a high femur in an open globe injury. Um, high femur is when there's blood in the anterior chamber. Um, it's, it's a sign that there's been a significant impact to the eye. Um, may or may not be um, an open globe, maybe a blunt um, injury, which is just a closed, could just cause a closed globe injury. But you're never quite sure because you can't really explore behind the muscles. And sometimes a blunt injury to the eye can cause the force to be transmitted. And then there can be a, a open globe behind the muscle attachments, which is not obviously visible when you're just looking at the eye. Um, if you've got a, a corneal laceration that may or may not be visible to the naked eye, if it's big enough, it will be. Um, but if you've got a, a very, now I don't recommend, some of the, some of the guidance I've seen recommends palpation of the eyeball itself to assess the pressure. Um, in the setting of trauma, I, I wouldn't recommend that because you don't want to be disturbing the contents by poking on the eye. Um, again, I, I would probably say your history, the mechanism of what happened and, and the vision and just the, the naked eye appearances or your, your magnified 
appearances with, what, with, with whatever magnification you have, those will probably be best in guiding you as to what kind of injury is happening. Um, if you've got stuff hanging out of the globe, uveal tissue, iris tissue, other stuff, it, just don't touch it, leave it there. Don't try and put it back. Don't try and snip it off. Um, you want to start people with systemic antibiotics. Um, UK ciprofloxacin is common, 500 milligrams twice a day in other localities, whatever the local guidelines are. Um, if you can just squirt some, again, antibiotic ointment on the surface of the eye, that usually won't do any harm. And then a soft pad, you don't want to pressure the eye. You don't want to put any pressure on the eye, just a pad to just stop any kind of, you know, environmental irritants getting in the eye and even a, a plastic shield, just something to, something rigid, rigid to cover the eye. Um, and then really you need to evacuate these people as soon as possible because it's not something that can be managed in, in an expedition setting and provided on the type of injury, a lot of them can, well, depends on the type of injury, but the, getting them to definitive care is the best way for them to kind of salvage whatever vision they may be able to have left at the end of that. No, yeah, these are true, true ocular emergencies. And, yeah. and having done one lateral canthotomy uh, in my career, I'm happy to have done one and mm -hmm. I'm happy to not do another one. Um, they're, they're a little uh, nerve wracking, but I'm sure with experience, it becomes easier and easier. But that's great advice. And I, I think a lot of people are taught actually to kind of palpate the eye to get a kind of gauge as to what the intraocular pressure is. But that seems to make sense to to not want to do that and to you know which can disrupt the eye uh, and mm -hmm. make matters worse so i i think you know that's that's a a good teaching point uh, that we can all take uh, as a as a you know teaching point uh, for yeah. those types of injuries because if you've unless you've gone around poking loads of eyes it's not going to really give you much more information that and i think that the risk of causing more problems is is greater than the small additional information you may obtain saying, oh, okay, there's a soft eye as well. But generally speaking, your, your history and what you can see should be enough. Sure, sure. So that brings me uh, to UV keratitis. Having uh, just been, uh, I, I'm broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts. We just got a, a foot of snow a day ago. And, and uh, um, uh, certainly UV keratitis is something that can happen in the urban setting, but uh, more commonly, obviously, um, in those of us who like to spend some time uh, in the mountains. Um, tell us a little bit about UV keratitis and what kind of environments um, that that type of injury might occur. Yeah, okay, so that's that's a really good one. Um, so UV keratitis, uh, also known as arc eye, um, welders used to get it, or they still can get it if they don't use protection. Um, snow blindness, photokeratitis, all the same entity. Um, it occurs from exposure to ultraviolet B light, and it's essentially a sunburn of the eye. Um, and you can get it from, often you get it from reflections. For, so in the snow or when you're at sea, um, even from sand as well, um, and also from tanning beds if, if people haven't been using the correct protection. Um, it involves basically that you can have a delay between the exposure and the symptoms developing because you often find people who've been out during the day, they can develop the symptoms at nighttime. Um, and the symptoms are a red eyes, painful, gritty, um, and they're very sensitive to light. Um, looking at the eye, you'll find that the, the conjunctiva is quite injected and, and red and angry looking. 
And then again, fluorescein becomes very handy here. Um, if you dye the eye with fluorescein um, and you shine the blue light, you'll find this kind of speckled appearance, the little green specks all over or covering one part of the, of the cornea, which is being exposed. Um, and then again, with the history, and if you got the history together um, and you know how it's, you know, you've got a good idea that usually can confirm the diagnosis. Um, the treatment of UV keratitis is, this is something that, you know, if you've, if you've seen it and you've got a good history and you, you've assessed it well, you can treat them quite well and, and resolve the condition in the expedition environment. Um, what we recommend is lots of lubricating drops or gel. Um, and again, antibiotic ointment three to four times a day, which would just prevent secondary infection on top of that exposed rough um, corneal epithelium. Um, they may find that just cool compresses, some cool bandages over the eyelids and the eyes closed to help. Um, if it's really bad, you might want to close the eye for a few hours or so. Um, you can use a greasy dressing. We call them, they're called gelonet here. They're just like a crisscross meshwork and they're usually coated with some kind of petroleum jelly. Close the eye, put that on the eyelids and put a pad on top. Um, get the patient to rest and they most likely will prefer the dark and avoid light. Um, and then that usually will improve in a couple of days. So that's someone who could maybe, you know, sit out of the expedition for a few days. And then once they're settled, get back involved. Um, prevention is the key really with, with UV keratitis. Um, and people need to be wearing the right kind of eye protection and also to be aware of the protective side pieces and obviously make sure that whatever protection they wear is graded to have 100% UV protection. So that, that being said, do you have any advice on, you know, the, there are obviously hundreds of different types of you know, eyewear out there. What's your advice on, you know, what kind of level of protection should be, we be looking at and how important are like side shields and things of that nature? So I, I think it depends on the environment you are. But if, for example, if you're in the, in the mountainous environment where, you know, there's ice and snow, you want something that gives you full coverage. So sides above and below, um, that will be the best, most extensive coverage you can get. And that will probably, you know, that will be the, your risk of getting UV keratitis there would be very low. Um, and then looking at the, the, the grading of the lenses, you want them to be 100% UV blocking lenses. Um, ideally, the, the, yeah, so UVB especially, but if you can get the other UV um, spectrum as well um, blocked, that's, that's what you want to be looking for. And make sure that, you know, they're high quality lenses. You're not finding some kind of cheap knockoffs, which just look a bit dark, but actually let the UV through. And that's one that's one piece of equipment that's going to be worth the money is having the the right type of eye protection and and that eye protection is also going to help protect you against abrasions and and penetrating foreign bodies and other kinds of uh, you know potential for trauma. Exactly. Um, so I think yeah, it's really important piece of equipment. Um, I want to leave a little time to talk about you know what to bring in our kit. So let's um, uh, finish up uh, our kind of pathology by talking a little bit about high altitude retinopathy. I think this is something frequently overlooked. Obviously, you know, high altitude cerebral edema and pulmonary edema are kind of the stars of the show when it comes to, you know, kind of the high altitude illnesses. 
But tell me, tell us a little bit about high altitude retinopathy and how that might pre- present and what we can do about it. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the four entities of, of high altitude illness, um, high altitude retinopathy. Um, and it, it basically occurs, I guess, it's a similar mechanism as all the others occur. It's a, it's a vascular response. Um, you, because of the, the low oxygen levels, you get vascular changes and you can get in, in the retina, you will find you, get, you can get multi-level hemorrhages. So you can get retinal hemorrhages, you can get vitreous hemorrhages, um, often it's, um, the risk factors, first of all, for this are the, the altitude you've attained um, the rate of ascent, um, duration and altitude. Um, and then it depends on individual susceptibility as well. Some people just, you know, won't get it. And some people will, which is similar to the other, um, altitude related illnesses as well. It typically occurs over 12,000 feet, but if there's other systemic factors where, you know, if people are dehydrated or they have other risk factors, it may occur lower as well. Some studies have shown it's more um, prevalent in the young and the well-trained individuals um, who are undergoing strenuous activity. Um, But generally speaking, it looks, if you were to look at people who've been to altitude and come down, you might find a, a significant proportion of them with high altitude retinopathy, but it's often asymptomatic because unless the hemorrhages occur over the central visual area, which is the macula, most people won't even notice it. And then what happens afterwards is that the blood, you know, when people return back to a normal altitude, the, 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 the vasculature becomes, you know, the, the, it becomes quite normal again. There's no response to the hyperbaric hypoxia and the blood which is leaked out will just gradually become absorbed again. And, you know, there's no symptoms and the patients don't really complain of anything. However, if, if a bleed occurs over the central area, then the patient often will complain of a blind spot or missing vision. Um, and in that case, what you're going to have at altitude is a painless loss of vision. Um, and then, you know, it could be high altitude retinopathy will be one of your differentials, but depending on the, the patient themselves, you, you could have others, you know, painless loss of vision is a big topic. So, Retinal detachment can cause a painless loss of vision. You can get other vascular occlusions. So you'd have to assess your patient as a whole to consider what's the risk here. Um, you know, if you've got an elderly person who's a bit of a vasculopath um, and, you know, they've got other arterial or other vascular issues, then you may also want to consider things like a retinal vein occlusion. They're quite common in the elderly. Um, if you've got a young person who's quite fit and well, no other issues and high altitude retinopathy is up on your list. But, you know, if you have a painless loss of vision and altitude, you're, it's sensible to get that patient to descend um, because you're not, you wouldn't be quite sure what you're dealing with. Um, and it's best not to risk it. Um, there were some studies looking at whether um, high altitude retinopathy could be a predictor of incoming acute mountain sickness. Um, but what they found was that it, it comes as a delayed response to altitude. So the people who did develop it developed the retinopathy many hours after the exposure to altitude. So it's probably not a very reliable predictor of um, oncoming um, acute mountain sickness. Um, so generally speaking, if you have painless loss of vision, HAR, high altitude retinopathy could be one of the causes and the, the best management is to just descend 
um, get the patient to come down to a normal altitude. Yeah, as as we would do with all the other kind of conditions. So that's that's yeah. really an important thing to think about. And uh, I think it's it doesn't get as much attention, but certainly, um, you know, it's it's of equal importance. Uh, vision, of course, is uh, really important when you're out on expedition. And uh, loss of vision could be, you know, life threatening um, in that regard, um, uh, especially you know depending on on who you're with and and what your circumstances are. Um, so I'm feeling a little more comfortable managing eye injuries and thinking about, you know, how I would manage corneal abrasions and foreign bodies, um, eyelid lacks and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, what, what should I think about uh, putting in my pack or in my kit for helping me manage these injuries uh, out, in the, out in the woods or up in the mountains? So you want a, a good light source, um, ideally one you're familiar with. So, yeah, I mean, all your kit you want to try and be familiar with. In a, in a safe setting beforehand, a, a good light source um, with a blue filter and, you know, because blue filters and fluorescein will really help you ident identify lots of problems. Some form of magnification, um, loops or a magnifying glass, um, whatever you can get your hands on, might be worth going down to your local eye department, seeing what kind of kit they have. Um, cotton buds, really useful, just sweeping the eyelids and just having a little look around sometimes, even foreign bodies, if you know, you don't have to go in with a needle first. You might just be lucky with a cotton bud, which you've dipped in some proximetocaine um, anesthetic drops, and you can just touch that upon the surface of the eye, and that can usually help remove superficial foreign bodies. Um, take some needles with you, 21 gauge and 23 gauge um, for your foreign body removal. Straight tying forceps, I like those because they're, they're just, they're usually quite fine and they're quite useful in removing debris and lid lacerations or thing you know, in the cornices in the lower corners upper corners of the eye um soft eye pads some gauze for padding the eye um your rigid plastic eye shields very important again in the uk we have them in the in the well, i'm sure in the us as well we have them in the local eye department and it's, you know if you went over to the, your local department and asked for a few they, they probably would give you a handful um, to take away um, some tape, obviously. And now direct ophthalmoscope is, is one piece of kit which people may think they could take, but unless you're quite comfortable in using it on a day-to-day -day basis, it may not give you much further information out on expedition um, that you could make use of. It does, however, have in it, some of them have in it a blue light filter. So that could be something that you might want to consider you know, because if you can't find a blue light filter elsewhere, that's the TEPS type of kit. In terms of drops and drugs, fluorescein, we've mentioned it many times, so hopefully that's, you realize how important that is. Um, local anesthetic drops of some sort, whatever your local formulation is, an antibiotic ointment, that comes in handy. Um, also a, a broad spectrum antibiotic drops, so contact lens, we didn't talk much about contact lens keratitis, but in, just to, on a quick note, if you've got someone with a contact lens, a contact lens wearer and they develop a, a sore red eye, contact lens keratitis is, you, you know, you're very high up and you, you would treat it as such um, until you can get them to definitive care. And those people would benefit from getting, taking the lens out and then using hourly um, broad spectrum, spectrum um, antibiotic drops. So you want to have them in your arsenal. Um, 
Lubricating drops, quite useful. Things like UV keratitis or just general eye irritation, they can usually quite help in, in alleviating symptoms. Oral antibiotics, broad spectrum in the UK, we'd say comoxiclav, which is quite useful for you know, skin issues, cellulitis of the eyelids, which could occur from cuts or bites from flies or animals. Um, ciprofloxacin, which is useful for any penetrating trauma coverage. And oral analgesia, as, as usual. So your um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, like ibuprofen, et cetera, or, and obviously paracetamol is always quite useful, can be, well, I say useful is if you've got something like a corneal abrasion or it's not really going to numb the pain, but in terms of any, it's just a bit of a, sometimes a bit of a placebo really just give someone some paracetamol. If they've got a bit of an achy, if they had a bit of an impact to the eye, a blunt trauma, it, it can just lessen the edge of the pain. Sure. Well, this was incredibly informative. I think those of us who work in emergency medicine, we are, we are comfortable with a wide array of pathology, but the eye always gives us a little bit of anxiety. I think you've helped to relieve some of that. Um, we've covered some uh, excellent uh, topics here today. Um, I wanted to thank you for you know informing us and, and providing me with some comfort. I'm sure those of us, uh, you know, all of our listeners are feeling a little bit more comfortable about um, you know identifying and managing eye injuries as well. And I know that you'll also be um, speaking and having a workshop at our upcoming um, conference, uh, pushing boundaries which is gonna be November 19th to the 21st in Edinburgh, Scotland, our World Extreme Medicine uh, Conference. Uh, and so those of you who want some more information about eye injuries, uh, you can certainly, uh, or just wanna meet Dr. Singh and, and, and chat with him. Um, he'll be uh, presenting a workshop on, on eye injuries and eye pathology uh, at that conference. So make sure to join us there and, and say hello to Dr. Singh. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, I'm really looking forward to that because just, and as you mentioned, all of this, this subject, it's, I'm quite passionate about it because it's all about anatomy, learning about what looks normal and then trying to look at what is abnormal and then using your history and your examination skills. Um, and I, I, I strongly believe, as you mentioned, it, it does cause a lot of anxiety to people, to, to non-ophthalmologists and the eye. But I think if you get some of the essential basics drilled down and nailed quite well and you have a good structure of history examination you don't really need too much high-tech kit to be able to you know manage something properly so in the workshop that's going to be my aim is going to be just try and empower people to not be afraid of the eye and then you know really get their hands stuck in not not literally but to really just um be able to find all the information that is there available to them and then put it together to come up with a, a good diagnosis and management plan. Well, thank you, Dr. Singh. And thank you to our listeners. We can't thank you more for choosing World Extreme Medicine for your podcast and for your source of information on extreme and wilderness medicine. Um, make sure to visit our website, uh, worldextrememedicine.com for more content like this, as well as some of our upcoming courses, 
uh, our, uni our uh, University of Exeter master's program, uh, as well as job opportunities in, in both wilderness and extreme medicine. Follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at World Extreme Med. And of course, join us in November at the World Extreme Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, and I, I suspect we may also have a, a virtual component to that uh, there as well. So to all, stay safe and see you all next time at the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.